0: did you have any question about the Academy and its mission? No. Good, because we don't really do anything except give out the Emmys. Why are you here?
1: I'm here to pick up my Emmy.
0: Your Emmy for what?
1: My Emmy for Breaking Bad.
0: Well, that's just wonderful. I don't recognize you from the cast. Are you involved in some technical aspect of the show?
1: You could say that, yeah. What area? Uh, watching. Watching.
0: Watching. I'm not familiar with that.
1: That's because the Emmys have been negligent about honoring those of us who make the industry what it is. Do you know the name of the first person who ever watched TV?
0: I'm afraid not.
1: My point exactly. There should be a special award named after that person. There should be awards for Best Live Tweeter, uh, Best Binge Watcher, and for Technical Accomplishment with a DVR. Last year you gave an Emmy to Behind the Candelabra.
0: Yeah, we're really sorry about that. And
1: nothing to the person who kept watching Homeland, no matter how annoying it got.
0: So, your award would be for watching Breaking Bad?
1: Yeah, I was always on time, and I paid really close attention, and I knew Hank was gonna-
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa. I haven't watched it yet.
1: But you work for the Academy.
0: We're only open around the awards show, and then we take ten months off. I'm more a reader, really. Look, take this Emmy. Really? Somebody from Modern Family left it backstage last year, and I never got around to tracking the person down. They win so many. It's kind of obscene, really.
1: Well, thank you. I'd also like to thank my family and my third grade teacher, Pat Smith. Do
0: that outside, please.
1: (sighs) Fine. Today on the show, some Emmy analysis, how Twitter shaped the Ferguson story, and an independent candidate for governor stares into the abyss. And now he still has B. Arthur swag bag from 1988. Colin McEnroe.
2: It's a long story. She left it in my hotel room in Beverly Hills. And I don't know. I don't believe in really talking about these things. All right. Yes, we are going to talk about the Emmys later in the show. They are tonight, they've been moved to Monday nights. Uh, and there's all kinds of other pre-Emmy analysis to do. So we'll do that toward the end of the show today. This is The Scramble. We uh, tend to cover a lot of ground on this show. Jonathan Pelto will join us also in the second segment. As you know, he was a petitioning candidate for governor, and uh, he is sort of right now staring into the abyss of not having enough signatures. So we'll talk about sort of where that effort is, but also talk about the process itself, which is, I think most of us would agree, more cumbersome than it needs to be and more complicated. We're going to start, though, with talking about the media itself. We're going to talk to Mark Coddington. Uh, he uh, writes weekly for the Neiman Journalism Lab. He's a PhD uh, student in digital journalism and media sociology at the School of Journalism at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, but his, uh, his column, his weekly column in uh, Neiman Journalism Lab is a must read if you're following this industry and this art. So thank Thank you very much for joining us today, Mark Coddington.
3: Thank you, Colin. Thanks for having me.
2: So uh, we want to talk a little bit about um, about the role that social media played in the coverage of Ferguson. Um, and you can kind of divide that into at least two parts and maybe more, but we can sort of start with the the, the placing of Ferguson on the agenda of people's attention. Uh, and one argument that's been made, and you've covered it as well, is that, that Twitter at least played a pretty significant role in just focusing people in on a story that, that might have floated, uh for a while anyway in in a vaster sea of other news stories
3: yeah and I, I think that's something that we've uh that we found and actually uh pew had some data you know they analyzed this pretty systematically and they did find that twitter was the first uh medium or the first platform to really pick up uh Ferguson as a story um and after that cable news uh picked it up pretty quickly after that and then they really kind of tracked together um, but this was a story that that started on Twitter um in terms of reaching people's attention and Twitter really dr- has driven it uh kind of the entire way through uh through the news cycle um so that's uh that's something that's not necessarily new to this story something we've been seeing with a lot of uh different stories over the past you know 5 uh years or so uh but we're beginning to see a pattern of certain types of stories that really are kind of work well are built for Twitter or that Twitter is built for and this turned out to be one of them
2: so, in, in in some ways, this is a little bit of a surprise if you think about the just overall bite that Twitter has of the media market. I mean, Pew also says, I think the last numbers I saw from Pew were, were that 19 percent of all adult online users use Twitter at all. So I guess what's significant is not that number, but the, the percentage of people making decisions about the rest of the media who are somehow or other taking cues from Twitter
3: yeah that's and that's exactly right um Twitter is we shouldn't really think of it as being you know representative of, of the American public or the internet using public or even the social media using public in any sort of way, but one really important role that it's grown to have in kind of developing the media agenda is it's where people from the media are and it's it's become an incredibly effective way to get the media's attention about underreported or less visible sort of issues, Um, because that's where journalists are obsessed with Twitter. And that's where journalists are, that's where their editors are, that's where their managers are, that's where the people who make decisions about what goes on your TV and what goes in your newspaper, they're scouring Twitter all the time. Um, So even if there's not a huge portion of the American public there. There's a really a disproportionate number of journalists and members of the media there. So if there can be uh, kind of a groundswell of of opinion and a groundswell of uh, sentiment on Twitter about a breaking event, that can usually be kind of the megaphone uh, that's used to get uh, the, the media's attention, whereas previously th- – there wasn't as natural of a megaphone for such kind of grassroots um, causes or social movements.
2: So, and this also pointed up a real difference between Twitter and Facebook. If you primarily used Facebook as your, as your social medium uh, and didn't use Twitter, you were a little, would be a little bit late to the Ferguson party, right? That wasn't, it wasn't really popping up on people's um, news feeds.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most people on Facebook what you were seeing the past 2 weeks was not uh was not the situation in Ferguson, but mostly people dumping buckets of ice water on their heads. Um and that was something that I noticed um early on uh when when the uh the confrontation between police and uh, and protesters first started up uh, – this had been about a week and a half ago in Ferguson. I was constantly following Twitter like a lot of different people were and looking at live streams and cable news. And I flipped over to Facebook because I thought, I, I bet I have some friends who have some opinions on this. I wonder what they have to say. And I, it was just nothing. It was it was silent, and it was really eerie um, to, to see the difference um, between the two. Um, and that was something that caught a lot of other people 's attention obviously everybody 's Facebook feeds look different, but there were there were a lot of different people who were noticing around the same time there's there's nobody 's talking about this on facebook um and and to the degree that you know there are a lot of people who used this use both platforms, it was kind of strange to see those two platforms being used in completely different ways uh so there so that that led f- to kind of a scramble over the past week to kind of figure out and try to understand why we would be seeing such two, you know such huge differences between these two big um social media platforms, especially on this story
2: and one piece I know you link to is uh, I may be saying her name wrong, although i 'm fascinated by her work. I read it all the time. Zainab tufeki uh writing in, in medium. Uh, on Medium dot com, writing about this very phenomenon. So some of it is probably the culture of Facebook, and we can swing back to that in a second. But uh, some of it is not how people use Facebook, but how Facebook works. Right? They have a filtering alg- algorithm that kind of determines what's going to pop up high on your newsfeed.
3: Right. Absolutely. That's. I mean, that's the big one. That that. Uh it kind of gets people's attention because it is so different than Twitter. I mean, Twitter, um, in theory and very, very often in practice, you get to choose exactly what goes into your feed. If somebody tweets something and you're following them, it will come into your feed exactly in the order that it was it was published. And in Facebook, that all goes through this mysterious black box that determines what you're going to see and when you're going to see it. Um, and and as a as a somebody who's posting on facebook you most of the people you who who are friends with you uh, or who are fans of you are not going to see what you post and you have relatively little say over who's going to end up seeing that and the same goes when you're consuming something Um, you have to kind of consume your facebook newsfeed understanding that this is a very kind of mysteriously hand-picked set of stories that uh Facebook has been very coy about about how it does so um how it picks these stories and what goes into its algorithm because they don 't want people to game it um so that 's a big part of it is the fact that you know there 's this algorithm that that we don 't really understand uh but we do know some things where we can kind of uh kind of guess at or understand some of the things, the principles that Facebook has in putting together its algorithm. And one thing that we see with Twitter is that for them, newness and freshness is incredibly important. It's whatever is the most recent thing that people have posted that, that goes to the top of your feed. With Facebook, they've clearly decided that being up to the minute is not as important. Uh, that's not the primary uh, kind of determinant of relevance to you as a user, Um, and in their calculation, because you can see this any time you go three, four, five days away from Facebook and come back, you're not going to get the newest post. You're going to get three-day-old Facebook posts, Um, and so that means that when you have an event that's unfolding so rapidly like Ferguson, Facebook is just not going to be that useful. to it for it because information that's six hours old may be considered pretty relevant by Facebook's algorithm but in Twitter time in an event like Ferguson that's pretty you know useless to you or certainly has quite a bit less value Um, so so some of it is is some of it is the algorithm itself and some of it is just this lack of necessarily emphasis on time as really the structuring aspect uh, for Facebook
2: I would just observe in passing that this is all stuff that the average social media user doesn't think about it all. No, it, it, it's you know I always compare it to the difference between buying a car and driving over a bridge. If you're buying a car, you want to know as much as you can about the, how the car works, what it's likely to break down from, what its safety record is, stuff like that. With a bridge, you don't really do a whole lot of investigating. People treat all the platforms they use online like bridges, but they're kind of using cars, really. It's, it's worth it to know how the thing works and how it doesn't work, but nobody ever really investigates that.
3: Right, right. And I think I think Facebook is Facebook is not necessarily like hidden you know, they don't necessarily hide the fact that they use a an algorithm and that you're not actually really seeing what all the people that you're friends with or fans of are posting. But they're not very out front with it. And I think their goal is for you to just kind of naturalize it and see it as, Oh, well this is what's going on today. No, well, this is what Facebook has, you know, decided uh what might be most interesting to you in what 's going on um so i think you're I think you're absolutely right that a lot of people just treat them all as the same and i I see the same way content comes to me on Twitter is probably the same way it comes to me on Facebook when in reality, those are two very differently structured um platforms with different philosophies about what people want to read and how they want to see it.
2: We're talking to Mark Coddington right now. Uh, You have to read his uh, weekly summation uh, of journalism news. Uh, On Nieman Journalism Lab's site, so um, we're going to talk uh, at more length about the role that Twitter plays in 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 shaping news perceptions and in calling our attention to things that we wouldn't otherwise know about. But uh, so I don't forget anyway. It's worth noting another thing, which is that you know as we talk about the events in Ferguson, we're going to talk about a lot of really fairly outrageous stuff and stuff that really requires some kind of long term thinking, some long term study, maybe even some long term outrage uh, about what happened, but. I wonder if the concern I have about Twitter is exactly what you said, which is it, it favors the latest thing, it favors the newest thing, it favors what's quote-unquote trending. And so you wonder whether, even though Twitter was a great model for looking at Ferguson over six, seven, eight, nine days, whether it's also a great model for forgetting about Ferguson three months from now
3: it it that's absolutely right, and I think it's it's why thinking about it now um as the story has begun to subside, although it's you know it's dominated at least my Twitter feed this morning uh with uh, Michael Brown's funeral um it's good to think about, okay, now that I'm kind of done being inundated with updates what what don't I understand yet um and what's missing from my understanding of how things work and as as i I find in my own media diet, and I think a lot of people find in their own media diets if they examine it, you end up with really kind of distorted understandings of of what's going on, and I think especially when you're relying on Twitter as a source of information for these really quickly unfolding events, you end up with a, a disproportionately strong understanding of kind of the blow-by-blow blow of what happened when and uh, which journalists were arrested at this point and which police captain used tear gas on which people. Um, but you end up with a relatively weak understanding of some of the bigger picture social causes that might be at work um, and and kind of the ge- Geographical context of where is Ferguson and what type of neighborhood it, is it, and the historical context, things like that, um, and those are things that you know uh, certain other forms of journalists, journalism, like uh, you know historically magazine journalism, um, and and other things like that, and to a, to an extent, very good newspaper journalism have been good at, and it takes some work to go seek that kind of thing out online to really fill out our understanding and i think i think you're absolutely right that um it's it's very easy to forget about a a story like ferguson a week later when the media has left the national media and you know unless you're in st louis you are not you don't have any sort of media sources that are attuned to this all the time and your twitter feed has moved on to whatever is the next you know um kind of controversy of the day or of the week um and so so i think it takes some some consciousness in how you consume media um to kind of Kind of some self examination to examine what else what else am I missing here and uh and where might I you know be able to find it um, because it's easy to get kind of sucked into the source that we find most interesting and that is most useful for us in a certain situation, only to realize that uh that it's left us with a kind of a warped understanding of an event or an issue.
2: We're talking to Mark Cottington uh, right now. Um, he uh, writes for Neiman Journalism Lab. So, so yeah, and I think there are also some real differences. I mean, we, we don't need to go into it at, at length, but there's really differences also. I mean, we're effectively talking about software right now or, or digital platforms. There's differences in hardware, too. I, I, I noticed this because I was out of town during a lot of Ferguson. I was in somebody else's apartment. I had an iPad with me. I didn't have a laptop um, with an iPad. You are going to do that thing, right? You're going to do that uh, thing where you're maybe scrolling around on Twitter and tapping on links and stuff like that, whereas I think particularly if you have any kind of journalistic background, if you've got a laptop or netbook or something like that, you're probably going to build your own mosaic of information a little bit more proactively and a little bit more aggressively. But people using tablets and phones, they they probably depend a lot more on the digital platform they're using.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, you know, I, this is a part of the reason I generally prefer to use my laptop is because I can kind of act, act as a news-consuming sort of power user, and a lot of that's different because that's part of my job, um, but I can really kind of look and in, in open a lot of different new tabs and examine, you know, oh, this one looks good. I want to save this and read it, you know, and really give it my full attention. Oh, you know, this I can just scan a headline and and, and uh, get rid of it. Whereas on a phone, you just end up, your, your kind of media consumption process just gets really um, kind of shrunk and really attenuated. Um, and so uh, it ends up being... Just necessarily it ends up being bits and bytes, and so it's really difficult if your main way of accessing news is through the phone. There are different ways that you can kind of find you know pieces that you can really devote a long period of time and your attention to deeper. Deeper news and analysis, but it just ends up tending to lend itself towards quick, superficial, um, and really recent uh, kind of based news consumption, uh, which that's the way, uh, that's the device that most of us are using to consume news, and that's the way um, we're doing it.
2: So one of the things that Twitter did well, I think, was introduce new kinds of information from um, from unforeseeable sources. And probably the most frequently cited of this was the so-called live stream platform that was coming from Argus Radio and then other people. I mean, I'm barely beginning to understand this today, but there was another piece on, on NPR about it. But there's uh, a company called Live Stream. Argus Radio was using their technology. So were other people. And I saw that in real time being circulated on Twitter, like, hey, you're not getting the kind kind of news that you want from whatever legacy news source they might want to mention, try this.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I was using that too. Um, And it really is fascinating. Um, And I think it's a really interesting, it's an interesting uh, source of news and an interesting exercise. One, just to, to kind of follow a news story that way um, just for the news value, and two, to be able to see and understand the degree to which the TV news that you get of events like that is really, really filtered, um, and filtered in really interesting ways. Um, And so to compare, you know, I would watch some, I would, that same Argus uh, live stream, you know, would watch it um, or have it open as I was, you know, reading reading about what was going on on Twitter and then periodically if you went to CNN or Fox News or something like that you might get them to break in for you know a 1 minute stand up um and you get to see, you see how narrow the snapshot is uh when the media has to be processed through so many different filters um as opposed to just being able to see this live stream that is one person's uh, – it's not totally unfiltered because they're still choosing to show you s- certain things on camera – but one person's raw experience. Um, and that's a really – I think its a, it can be a powerful way to experience a news story um, and a really kind of interestingly different way to consume a news story. I think it it's still – it's tough to make sense of a lot of times. Um, And so there's still a very valuable role for consuming stuff that has been run through filters and editors and gatekeepers to help us understand the totality of what's going on beyond what one person is seeing through their – you know, video camera.
2: I, I think one of the things that digital journalism did well this time and, and typically does do pretty well is sort of crowdsource information, and it can, can come a lot of different ways. up Tufekci in that same article we're talking about talked about how on Twitter after a while uh, people in, in Cairo, people in Ukraine were chiming in with exper- advice about how to get through a tear gas attack if tear gas is fired at you, but also with, you know, more professional journalism. Uh, at one point, for example, they were using one of those Soundwave cameras Cannons on people, and immediately or very quickly, Gizmodo or TechCrunch—I was Gizmodo, I guess—one of the tech sites uh, had, had kind of a report. Well, what is that thing? Is it dangerous? Could it actually damage your hearing permanently? And I'm not sure a legacy news source that didn't have quite as many specialists in an area like that could have done something as as quick and reliable as that.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that's one of the uh, great kind of advantages and potentials of crowdsourcing is the ability to tap into such a wide uh, range of expertise Um, and that's kind of one of the mantras of this movement going back at least a decade is, is that my readers or my audience knows more than I do. Um and I think journalists are in the habit of being able to po- you know kind of position themselves as experts and if i if I'm at least not an expert on this, I will spend you know an hour talking to somebody who actually is and then I'll tell you what you need to know and I think what's cool about um this these sort of processes that are more bottom up and a lot more networked and not really bound by, you know, specific institutions is that you're able to tap into a much wider range of expertise than can be contained in one, you know, journalism or newspaper newsroom or something like that. Um, and there's a real there's a real potential to be able to tap into that um very quickly and and, and in real time, uh these types of uh these types of expertise, like you said, technological, scientific, sociological, political um, there are so many experts out there who have um, have a lot of knowledge and but just don 't have the kind of natural built in platform that the traditional media has always had um, and it can be a great way of giving people. Um, the kind of appropriate microphone at the right time, um, and they can react to that a lot more quickly than a more institutional media source might.
2: All right. Let's um, uh, finish here with the, one of the downsides of all this, which is that Twitter creates a pace for news reporting, and and then other kinds of legacy media feel an obligation to match that pace. So you've got these reporters here who are, uh, and this has been talked about a lot. But you know, if you ever, it was bad enough before there was Twitter. If you ever watched, you know, a national. Crew of reporters. I mean, either the, the bunch of people on, on the plane or on the bus for a presidential campaign, or almost any other swarm of reporters arriving at a national event. I mean, the 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 urge and the immediate. Um, obligation to file something right now vastly exceeded what they actually knew at any given moment, and, and it started to eat into their time to find out what was actually happening. Well, it's a million times worse now, right? If you're, if you're tweeting all the time, if you're having to completely uh, update your information, you don't have as much time to analyze really what's happening.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And if you talk to journalists, whether they're covering events like this or any kind of event that has some sort of breaking news value, they will you know, – they'll tell you that that is a tension that they struggle with constantly, the need to tell people what's going on right now. Which is inevitably going to kind of structure your story into little, you know, small, immediately focused, narrowly focused chunks and slices versus the idea that I've got to get, you know, I've got to get some breathing room on this situation and get some idea of the context. And, and and a lot of journalism for so long has been finding, trying to find out context incredibly quickly um, and trying to... Get a sense and give people a sense, you know, getting up to speed on big picture, gigantic social issues, you know, and situations that are really complicated within, you know, um, a matter of hours um, and that those two goals are really at odds and I think it does it makes it pretty difficult um, for for individual reporters to do I think it, it one thing that can help is if you're thinking as a news organization not so much on the reporter level but more generally on sort of a team level um, and I think you've seen some some news some of the bigger news organizations that have the staff to do this have done it very effectively where they They have people on the ground who are the people giving the updates every five minutes, what's going on on Twitter, and you saw this in the Ferguson story. And then you have other people who are pretty much quiet on social media while they're working back channels and finding sources and doing research, and then they – uh... produced the next day you know some big you know piece that really helps explain and untangle some of the deeper questions behind so i think there is a place for both um, and i think it, it can even be done by the same same journalists if they're extremely skilled Um but it's certainly more difficult uh... that is that is no doubt as you've said it's it's something that didn't start with twitter it's been going on um even since well before television uh, but it's become, if you talk to journalists, it's become a much more pressing concern for them, balancing the, the now and the, the deep, big picture.
2: Mark Coddington, thanks so much for joining us today. Mark's work is uh, seen weekly at the Neiman Journalism Lab. He also has markcoddington.com, his own site. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with Jonathan Pelto after this. A
4: billion
3: people died on the news tonight
4: But not so
5: many cried at the devil's sight
4: Well, Mama said,
0: it's just make believe You can't believe everything you see So, baby, close your eyes to the lullaby
2: Welcome back to The Scramble, and we are scrambling today, uh, but we're scrambling effectively. Uh, By the way, as we talk to Jonathan Pelto here, if you have your own questions, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Well, Jonathan Pelto, uh, for the last, um, well, I guess month plus, uh, there's been a lot of excitement around your potential candidacy. For governor, uh, you'd be running effectively as an independent, although with the Education and Democracy Party. Um, the key was, of course, getting seven thousand five hundred validated signatures to get yourself on the ballot. What we've been reading over the weekend is that this uh, effort is starting to look a little uh, cloudy at best, and, and maybe worse than that. What can you tell us right now?
5: Yeah, you had you had said uh, organized scramble. So mm-hmm. the process has really been an, an eye opener, and and would should be filed under disorganized scramble. Um, it, it the It really boils down to the fact that at this point, they're still counting, they'll count through uh, probably Wednesday or Thursday, and anything is possible. But uh, for the first time, I've become more pessimistic that we've reached the magic number of 7,500. The legal, uh, structural, and political barriers were, quite frankly, greater than I had expected. I take full responsibility for not collecting enough, uh, for having a campaign that didn't collect enough signatures. Um, but we've really learned a lot about how dysfunctional, how primitive the process is, and how um, the, the the quote unquote incumbency party, whether it's Democrat, Republican, the establishment, the insiders, have set up basically a system that is almost impossible to qualify for the ballot. That said, hats off to Joe Visconti, who did do uh, mm-hmm. a remarkable job. He collected uh, 10,600 signatures. He got the 7,500 he needed in part because he had a table sitting outside of uh, Hoffman's gun shop where he was able to collect uh, signatures from everybody who walked in and out buying guns and ammunition. Um, and if my issue was guns instead of education, we might have had a different outcome. And then he had a, a very good strategy of going to those towns that were having budget referendums where there were lots of voters. We we went with the more both central and decentralized effort, and I thought it was enough. I still think we probably got about eight or 9,000 signatures Uh, But what we weren't prepared for was the significant number that would be uh, rejected, including many. Uh, We've we've identified well over 100, closing in on 200, who were uh, rejected inappropriately or even illegally. The problem is that even with those names, we may not be close enough to make a lawsuit worthwhile.
2: So, just to sort of familiarize people with this a little bit, I mean, probably the toughest thing about this, correct me if I'm wrong, but probably the toughest thing about this is that you can't collect all of your signatures uh, in one place onto one one petition and turn it into the state. All of the petitions have to be, be for the town in which the person resides. So, if you're standing out in front of Hoffman's guns uh, and people come from Bark Hampstead and people come from uh, Berlin and people come from Coventry uh, to get to buy their guns, you have to ha- have them sign onto a petition for that town and then turn that petition in, in Coventry, in Berlin, in Barkhamstead.
5: That's right. So from the very beginning, uh, it's an uphill climb. So in essence, when you go to a public event, you have to have up to 169 sheets of paper because people have to sign on the sheet that goes to that person's town, town clerk. And uh, the smallest mistake uh, in in looking through our petitions, we saw dozens of examples despite trying hard to train our people to say, are you a registered voter? What town are you a registered voter in? I'll give you an example. One of our people put WH at the top of the sheet. Uh, I think they meant West Hartford. At some point during the day, they got confused and thought it was Wethersfield. Mm -hmm. And so out of the 30 names on the sheet, there were about 10 from West Hartford where the petition got sent mm-hmm. and about 20 that got rejected because they they were voters, but they were voters in Wethersfield and the sheet got sent to West Hartford. And in this day and age, you'd think that um, you'd be able – there is a centralized voter file. You'd think you, the secretary of state could check that or you could scan it and send it to two different towns. But the, the law is so old and so primitive that it says if you sign on the wrong town, you're uh, Signature doesn't count, and then we found even if you put all of your information down accurately, that's right, yeah, your address or whatever, it's all that's right. doesn't make any difference. And and uh, the the for example, you, you you sign it, you put your name. Uh, there's a space for birth date, which is not optional in primaries, but is optional in general elections, <laughs> and then your address. So we found a whole lot of uh, people being rejected because their birth date uh, field was blank, even though we had been told it was optional. The Secretary of State's office attorney said those names should not have been rejected. Um, There's no reason to reject those. Uh, Another category was there are people who are on the active voter list and the inactive voter list. Uh, You get put on the inactive voter list if you don't vote for a couple of cycles. The law is very clear. You need to be moved back to the active list. But in many towns, the uh, the town clerks – it turned out that the, uh, the, the registrars seemed knowledgeable about the law but town clerks not as much. And so they were rejecting names where there was no birth date even though it wasn't necessary. They were rejecting names. Their person was on the inactive voter list when they should have been allowed to. And the answer was when I said, you know, what do we do? How do we, how do we fix these? Um, they said there's really no way to do it because you'd have to take this petition back to the town clerk and ask them to reconsider. But because you can't touch this petition and you've already missed the window to put in the petition, it's a sort of a Kafkaesque or Monty Python scene where they said, uh, yes, what's happened is against the law. But there's nothing that you can do except to sue us after the fact.
2: So, the, And this is sort of an interesting point, and I think it is a real difference between how we handle the registration of voters, which is our goal is to have as many people register to vote as possible and have as many people be able to vote as possible. And I mean, there are some people who will describe their experiences at Connecticut polling places a little bit differently, but by and large, I think that's the overall goal. Let's get as many people into this process as we possibly can. This process that you're describing here seems to exist to disqualify people. It doesn't exist to uh, include People in the process of signing petitions to get somebody onto a ballot. It exists to disqualify signatures. There, there isn't a part of this process that has to do, as you're saying, with correcting any mistake that might be made by a town clerk. Or there, there isn't, even though it's a two-tier process. There's a town process. There's a secretary of state process.
5: There's no part of that process that fixes the mistakes. That's right. It, it, one would, one would think that it's almost perfectly designed to make it almost impossible to get on the ballot. And it's one of the great uh, ironies, particularly I think I say this as, as a lifelong Democrat, that you know we're for more voter registration, we're mail-in registration, same-day registration, uh, uh, early voting uh, against any of the quote-unquote Republican efforts to suppress voting. And then you say, hey, by the way, I'd like to run. And the first thing they say is, A, you're a spoiler, and B, you have to go through a process that is extremely uh, difficult and finally you know and again i we just didn't get enough signatures and and the secretary of state's office staff is very open about it they say look that's why we tell you to get more than enough signatures because lots of legal signatures get rejected even though that's illegal mm-hmm. um but we also you know the fact that the the pushback from the from the political establishment um, was a barrier that I expected, but not quite as uh, as much as, as happened. I mean, to be told that, you know, despite uh, having been endorsed in each of my legislative elections by the AFL-CIO and uh, finishing up my career back as a legislator with one of the highest labor ratings, the fact that the AFL-CIO wouldn't allow me to come and speak to their convention, that the American Federation of Teachers wouldn't allow me to fill out a questionnaire or have an interview or even speak to their executive committee, the CEA said that I couldn't stand outside of their summer uh, leadership conference to collect signatures because it would be perceived as an unfair advantage. I don't I – don't, those are not the reasons I'm falling short. But it is an interesting commentary about how the quote-unquote establishment uh, is able to ensure that there are as few candidates as possible on the ballot.
2: So, Jonathan Belto, I mean, it, it sounds like you're somewhat resigned, although maybe holding one tiny little birthday candle of hope uh, up in the darkness, but somewhat resigned to the fact that this is probably not going to work out for you. You're probably not going to get on the ballot. What's your
5: role the rest of the way from August to November? What's, what, what do you do? Well, still still, sort of grappling with that. I think that the issues that I was raising are important issues, that uh, I want to look for ways to continue to raise those issues. Uh, the, the, the highlight of this whole experience, other than obviously lots and lots of people coming forward to support my candidacy, although not enough who signed petitions, was that um, I was really uh, – Interested that the media was so open to third-party candidates, far more than the establishment. Uh, you know that that, that there were a, there was a lot of media coverage, and that makes me th- uh, give some hope to the longer-term chance of reforming the system, but also to the possibility that maybe we can come up with ways to continue to force these issues into the public domain. Even though my guess is that the uh two major party candidates really don't want that to happen the thing that i feel worst about is that i was really looking forward to participating in the debates because i think that the candidates otherwise would have gotten away with they will get away without having to be specific and now the question is is there anything that we can do um as citizens to force the candidates to uh take responsibility for their record uh records and or be specific about what they would do differently uh, over the next four years,
2: I know. it does seem as though. I mean, first of all, it's a system that wants more voters, but not not more candidates. We can see that now, and and then, I mean, it really is going to be an election in which I feel like I'm going to wake up every day and Sonny and Cher are going to be singing, I got you, babe, and I'm going to go through the whole thing that I went through four years ago because this election is not going to look substantially different in terms of the candidates or probably in terms of what they say from what it did four years ago.
5: That's right. And as you've you've written so eloquently, this notion that has become sort of the mainstream mantra of American politics, which is, I'm not as bad as the other guy without actually having to go into any details about yourself or even anything specific about the other guy and you know uh, you want to be careful not to be overly melodramatic but the one thing we know is that th- that approach will attract fewer and fewer voters making the likelihood of third party candidates less and less because more and more people get turned off in in a number of p- times when i walked up and asked somebody to sign the petition their response was i'm not into politics and and you want to say uh, you pay taxes, <laughs> you, you're an American, we're, we're distri- you know. Politics are into you. <laughs> Politics are into you. And the great American irony that somehow we feel that it's our responsibility to spread democracy around the world, unless, of course, people vote against our interests, but we want to spread democracy around the world, but we don't really want too much democracy here at home.
2: Uh, uh, that's a, a, a gloomy, but I think appropriate place to end. Jonathan Belter, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. All right. And we'll be back.
4: And
1: just in case I missed anybody, I'd like to thank everybody in this, which is the 860 White Pages for 2013. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Jackie Filson. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Tolarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jack Klugman. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff passed out at Carrot Tops after party, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Hidden World of Competitive Mini Golf. And now, back to Colin.
2: All right, uh, tonight are the Emmys, which is unusual in and of itself. They're usually on Sunday nights, a change has been made. So you're here to talk to us about that and about uh, the probable and probable winners and perhaps the people more deserving of wins, Matthew Gilbert is the TV critic for the Boston Globe and the author of the new book Off the Leash: A Year at the Dog Park. Uh, He and uh, Boston Globe colleague Sarah Rodman do a weekly show about TV called We Love to Watch. Um, So let's start, uh, Matthew Gilbert, with the fact that uh, it's moved to Monday night, which I'm assuming has at least something to do with the fact that so many of the nominated shows, so many of the watchable, talkable kinds of shows appear on Sunday night. So it's kind of feels kind of weird to be watching the new episode of, uh, you know, uh, of Masters of Sex while, in fact, Masters of Sex is up for some kind of award.
4: Yeah, no, no, Colin. No, <laughs> no. Um, that would be a lovely idea, but it, it actually probably has more to do with the uh, MTV Video Music Awards. Ah. Yes. You know, all the young people like to watch that.
2: The Fun Awards.
4: Yeah, the Fun Awards. The
2: Rowdy Awards.
4: Right. <laughs> um, the Twerking award, hmm. Awards. Uh, so, and I think that in combination with the uh, football schedule kind of put NBC in a bit of a corner and they decided to go with a Monday night.
2: Well, the other thing that, there, uh, I appeared that they appear to be interested in based on a little bit of the reading that I did is, you know, I mean, some of these award shows, maybe they start to feel a little bit stale. The Emmys always feels like, you know, in some ways the less, the least exciting one because... People who are on television, they can't do things the way Tony uh, award winners can or or award nominees can. and It's a little less of the glamour. But also, people love to live tweet stuff. People love television events, right? So NBC is hoping that a lot of people jump on their Twitter feeds and make fun of people at the Emmys tonight.
4: Absolutely. I mean, that seems to be able to really give uh, an added dimension of life to a show, as we all know from the Sharknado uh, phenomenon. Mm
2: Um so let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, nominees here and so uh, and you did a, i think a very interesting sort of chart of probable winners probable losers deserving winners and losers um one of the things that you are saying i think is that that breaking bad really does deserve this year because as it brought its, itself to such an interesting conclusion it does deserve some of these awards
4: absolutely i mean you know I, There aren't many great dramas that we can say were consistently good throughout their entire run. I mean, I'm a huge Sopranos guy, but there were a few weak uh, seasons or you know, half seasons in there. Um, Breaking Bad was just a model TV show, and uh, it's hard to imagine voters not acknowledging that this year. They came a little bit late to the show as a best drama. It did not win that award until last year. Um, Prior to that, it, you know, almost every year went to Mad Men. Um, They understood that Bryan Cranston was extraordinary, but they didn't really honor the show uh, enough so i think this year they're certainly going to try to make up for that and you know in addition to acknowledging how great that last half season was
2: i think also mad men and and uh, breaking bad they share something else i think which is a real sense of beginning to end direction you know that they there's sort of an, uh, an overarching game plan here where this show is going yeah and and i sometimes don't feel that about other shows you i share your admiration for the tremendous performance that Lizzie Kaplan has been giving in Masters of Sex. Yes. But as I watch that show, I sort of think, well, they're kind of, I think, maybe getting renewed year to year. I, I wonder if they really... I mean, I don't, I don't always feel that that show has quite the unerring sense of direction that, say, Breaking Bad does.
4: Yes, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I agree with you. I love a show that feels very um, planned out from beginning to end. Uh, you know, I think that... Uh, that sort of overall arc can really be a great thing, and it's something that lost, I think got lost with. Um, Masters of Sex uh, is kind of based on history, so I think it would be harder for them to really go into the whole show with you know, a sort of preformed arc, or maybe a little more challenging. But who knows? They may have a, a, a long view in mind that we're just not quite aware of yet.
2: You know, there, there do seem to be this year some shows that I'm surprised haven't merited a little bit more consideration. And once again, uh, in your writing, you have made it clear. I mean, it, the I Emmy mean, nomin, nominating committee seems not to know that there's a show called The Americans that people are getting very excited yeah. about and which seems to be doing some really interesting things with 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 historical fiction and with uh, you know, character development, all, all kinds of stuff. And it just, it's invisible here in these awards.
4: It's exactly. I mean, it's its just, the Emmys have a history of, you know, ignoring some of TV's best. I mean, it's, it's just so sad. They pretty much ignored The Wire, which has gone on to become one of the top, you know, five ever TV dramas. Um, and uh, I think they're making the same mistake with The Americans. I mean, sometimes it has to do with just how much good stuff there is out there. I mean, aside from Down Abbey, none of the drama series nominees are weak. You right. know? So, I mean, there's not a lot of room. And uh, unfortunately, uh, that's, you know, the Americans just kind of got lost. I feel that way about Vikings as well. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. Um, it's on history, and it's extraordinary. It's a really well-done uh, drama about the Vikings with some amazing performances, and it, it really has been completely overlooked by Emmys. It's really a shame.
2: I, I would also say that. About, I haven't seen The Vikings, though I do know people who admire it. Uh, another one that you have mentioned, Damian Bashir on the bridge, is going yes. be giving really one of the truly haunting performances on television. And just while we have time, too, if, if there's one total scenery-chewing performance that anybody's giving on television right now. It's this young Canadian actress, Tatiana Maslani yes. who's on Orphan Black. I mean, how you could have television acting awards? This woman plays like nine different characters and sometimes plays two different characters talking to one another and reacting to one, one another. I don't even know how some of the things that she does are even possible. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I agree. It's a miraculous performance. And um, it's hard to understand how the Emmys could ignore it. But they do have a history of snobbery toward genre series. I mean, Game of Thrones has kind of emerged out of that, but they never nominated Buffy the Vampire Slayer or um, Battlestar Galactica. Sci-fi, fantasy, um, anything like that, they really tend to kind of snub. It's, it's really too bad and, and limited.
2: Matthew Gilbert, we have got about thirty seconds left. You want to make one pr- prediction where tomorrow everybody will say, "Wow, Matthew Gilbert really nailed that one."
4: <laughs> oh God! You know, well, I hope that I'm. I hope John Boy wins. That's all I'll say. I mean, I know Breaking Bad is going to take a lot of the drama categories, but I really hope John Boy wins.
2: I John mean, Voight on Ray Donovan is giving uh, the performance of of his career, and it's a performance that doesn't really resemble anybody else's performance, too. It's exactly. really amazing. It's- well, uh, Matthew Gilbert, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, now that we've discovered you, we'll uh, turn to you again in the future. Thanks for being oh, with I'd us today. I'd love to come back. Please. All right. Bye. Bye-bye now. And we're going to say goodbye, to Tomorrow we're talking about competitive mini-golf. Not you trying to get through the windmill. We're talking about there actually is a tour. There's a national tour that people play on. It has its own stars. And anyway, that'll be tomorrow. Thanks to Kyone Wolf and Betsy Kaplan and Katie Delarski for pulling together today's show.
1: I'm Kayone Wolf, and I'd like to extend my deepest sympathies to John Hamm for not winning tonight at the Emmys. Too soon?